Welcome to Thrive, the Eastern Health Junior Doctors Medical Education Podcast. Thrive is brought to you by a team of junior doctors asking great questions and producing essential education. In 2022, we're excited to bring you more content and help you become a more confident, capable doctor. I'm Emma, an ED physician and supervisor of junior doctor training at Eastern Health, and I love seeing junior doctors grow. So let's jump right in. So did I tell you about that case on the weekend? That is a fascinating case. It was a really challenging case. On reflection, I think I would have done some things differently. I think this is a great case. I mean, this is a fantastic case. There's so many key learnings here and things to discuss. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing some of the great cases we've seen at Eastern Health. The medical stories that fascinate, challenge and teach invaluable lessons. Now, of course, the patients whose stories we're so privileged to learn from will be completely de-identified, including some of the medical information in their story. What we hope you will recognise, however, are the uncertainties, the gradual revelation of clinical information and the triumphs and tragedies of real medical care. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Green and Sam Sakar, both ED doctors at Eastern Health. Sarah is an ED consultant with an interest in medical education, and Sam is one of our senior registrars who takes a particular interest in well-being. Sarah and Sam, welcome to Thrive. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Emma. Excited to be here. Excellent. So I'm going to start off this case. We're going to be talking about a lovely lady who's handed over to me on a midweek afternoon shift. The consultant lets me know that she's 70 years old. She's got a background of high-grade mediastinal lymphoma that's been treated with chemotherapy and regular radiotherapy. She's had several recent admissions with aspiration pneumonia. And today she's come in via ambulance. She's had several days of cough and shortness of breath. And with the ambulance, she was very hypoxic. She had SATs that were reading at 50%. Now, we all know that 50% is a completely unreliable SAT, but we also know that it's really concerning. In the ED, they've already started NIV and her SATs have improved to the very low 90s on an FiO2 of 100%. She's had IV antibiotics started and her chest X-ray shows another likely aspiration pneumonia. Now, the very laconic, relaxed consultant who you know quite well looks at you and says, she's not looking really good, Emma. (laughs) So already you're quite worried. But Sarah, before we go and meet this lady... Can we just touch on the recurrent aspiration pneumonia for a moment? What are some of the common scenarios, Sarah, that we might see this in? Yeah, so I am curious with this patient exactly why she's having recurrent aspiration. Um, So I wonder whether in the context of her having a mediastinal cancer and radiotherapy to that area, whether there's been damage to her esophagus, damage to her trachea, which has caused her to have recurrent aspiration. It sounds like this is, if this wasn't happening before all of this cancer history, that that's probably going to be the most likely cause. In other patients, um, you can have, um, so you can have patients who aspirate because of an acutely reduced conscious state. So someone in a, you know, an overdose situation, someone who's had a major intracranial event, someone who's had a cardiac arrest, they're all potential causes of Um, acute aspiration Um, and then you've got your patients who have chronic neurological um, conditions 
So patients who have had strokes, who can't coordinate their swallowing um, and who um, recurrently aspirate. And in the, in the context of this patient, we haven't been told that she's got any sort of brain mets or previous stroke history, so it's hard to know exactly why she's aspirating, but I think it's relevant to her management. And I think the other thing that's very relevant is the actual prognosis of her malignancy um, and what her wishes are. Yeah, so we're definitely going to come back to that really important question when you've got someone who's critically unwell and she seems to be potentially even deteriorating and we don't know what she wants or even what's possible for her care. So we will definitely get back to that. So Sarah, I think you've covered that nicely. We, it's too easy, isn't it, just to not consider those causes and to just go, oh, she's aspirating, we're having another event. But but looking at those causes is really important. So you go in and see the patient now and she just looks completely exhausted. Her respirate's 40, her SATs are in the low 90s, and a repeat venous gas shows that her CO2 is just gradually rising. When you have an exhausted patient in front of you with a respiratory component to their illness, serial venous blood gas measurement can be a really valuable measure of worsening respiratory failure. This lady's rising CO2 is a significant concern. She is not improving on NIV. She's been on it for at least an hour now. And look, this really isn't entirely unpredictable because we know that NIV doesn't tend to improve pneumonia, unlike APO, asthma and COPD. It might temporise the hypoxia while you make some plans, but these patients just typically tend to get worse and need further strategies if they're going to survive. So we've now got a patient who's got a significant hematological, oncological diagnosis and she's failing NIV. So, Sam, what are the factors in the decision-making going forward and and who gets included in that decision-making? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to think about here. So <clears throat> one of these sort of um, patient factors, so, you know, with all these types of decisions, there needs to be, when possible, shared decision-making around what we do to patients and what they want done to them. Uh, and that would involve either the patient, their family, next of kin, medical power of attorney, um, and ideally, you want to be have discussions when a patient is, you know, in a situation in a state that they can have them. In this particular case, it sounds like it might potentially be difficult if she's in sort of extremist or in sort of respiratory distress to then try have to have these discussions with her. Um, the other side, of course, of all, you know, the other part of all medical decision making, I suppose, is weighing up the risk and benefits of any uh, intervention. And so we've got to think about what we're trying to achieve by doing something. Um, and that needs to be, I guess, thought of in the context of both the current issue, but also with, you know, in, in sort of in relation to the underlying disease process and its trajectory. So in this case, she's in respiratory distress. You know, what will we achieve by intubating her? In the first instance, yes, we might be able to better ventilate her and give us a chance to treat that, you know, that, that infection that she seems to have recovered for from in the past and perhaps address why she's having these current um, aspirations. But I guess there's also a question on where is this going? You know, is her cancer getting better? Is the prognosis, you know, is, you know, is the oncology team um, you know, is this something that we think is going to likely have a good outcome? You know, and have those sort of likely scenarios been discussed with her? And, you know, what are her preferences in, in, in all of this? Would you also have a chat to ICU? 
So yes, in our in our, in our ED, we have access to ICU uh, clinicians, intensivists who you know do a lot more of this type of decision making. So certainly, having their input would be helpful. And I think you're right that they are the pointy end of this decision making a lot more frequently than we are. We certainly see a lot of it, but one thing that our ICU colleagues have and our hemonc and oncology colleagues have that we don't is a really good understanding of the trajectory of these illnesses. Really that long-term exposure to see who's going to get better, who's going to get worse. I think involving as many people in these pointy end decisions as possible and also making sure you check whether the patient does have an advanced care plan already written, um, what their if they've had um, a resuscitation plan in previous admissions, but then getting people to, so the intensivists, the oncologists and us and the family members and the patient if they're well enough, although it sounds like this patient certainly isn't. Absolutely. I think difficult goals of care decisions have to be shared. And I often don't necessarily start with the patient. I try and start with an understanding of the disease process. So talking to the patient's haematologist, talking to intensive care about their expectations. In this case, there's almost a perfect aligning of the stars. Haematology and ICU are both in agreement that intubation and aggressive aggressive treatment is in the patient's interests. And the patient, even in full knowledge that she may not improve and that the ICU journey can be extremely rigorous, is also keen for full active management. So everyone's on the same page. And, you know, I think it just goes to show my initial thought when she came in was no one is going to think that this is appropriate. But actually, everyone felt it was. So it was really helpful to have those insights. So now we're planning to intubate this lady. It's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. She's hypoxic. She's still sitting around 88% or so in her cells. She's exhausted. She's been unwell now for several days. We know already that she's prone to aspiration. And we know that she's had this mediastinal malignancy and radiation to that area. So, Sarah, this just sounds like a nice routine intubation, doesn't it, in the ED? (laughs) Sounds like one of the easiest ones you've ever presented me with, Emma. (laughs) What are the risks that you're considering when you prepare to tube this patient? Yeah, so there are a number of risks and I think that there's a couple of ways you can um, break them up. Um, I probably look through and do it in sort of an airway breathing circulation disability um, way. So looking at her airway, so the traditional things that people think about when they think about a difficult airway. So looking at your Malampati score, your likely airway grades, whether they've got a small jaw, whether they've got full mouth opening, all this sort of airway, whether they can move their neck, whether they've got um, so all the kind of usual things that you go through when you're doing an airway kind of anaesthetic assessment. In this patient, that's not what I'm worried about. That might make things harder, but then you go to breathing. And if you're starting with a patient who's already hypoxic, she is only going to become more hypoxic when you um, when you go to intubate her because she's breathing at a rest rate of 40 to maintain SATs on your maximum pre-oxygenation with NIV and FiO2 of 100, and she's only just getting SATs of 90%. So she's almost definitely going to desaturate. Um, You've then got, so 
breathing and she's also tiring. So you're really looking at someone who's really critically unwell. Um, Circulation-wise, I'm not sure if you mentioned it or not, but was she hypotensive or tachycardic? At this stage, her blood pressure is 140 on 80. But just to put that in some context, she's been unwell for three days and she's incredibly stressed right at the minute you're making this assessment. So these patients typically with the anaesthetic drugs do not need very much. You need to give them really small doses. This is not the same as an elective anaesthetic intubation. They've or their sympathetic drive has been going for days. She's potentially got a degree of sepsis with her aspiration and she is very likely to um, become shocked and potentially arrest in your intubation. So you want to be thinking about really small doses of anaesthetic agents. For clarity here, when Sarah talks about small doses of anaesthetic agents, it's really the sedation component that gets modified in this kind of setting. The dose of the muscle relaxant remains the same. This patient is likely to have a high sympathetic drive and hypovolemia. When you give her a sedative that then blunts that sympathetic drive considerably and her hypovolemia is revealed, it's expected that she may become quite hypotensive, so gentle doses are so important. And also considering putting an art line in um, before and giving you know, metaraminol or other vasopressors within your intubation. And who is going to do this intubation? Are you going to get anaesthetics down because they can do probably the fastest intubation, but also they're not as used to intubating the most critically unwell patients. Um, and then you've got things like her acid-base status. So we know that her CO2 is rising, so she's going into a worsening respiratory acidosis, type 2 respiratory failure. And if we take away her respirator 40 when we paralyse her, then her acidosis is going to become worse during the intubation and she can potentially arrest from that. So there is a consideration of even giving someone like this bicarb, um, which is a bit controversial, but it's very controversial, but that would be a discussion you'd be having with ICU um, and anaesthetics or anyone you were doing the intubation with is what can we do to optimise this patient. I really love the ABCD approach to even thinking about them. That's the approach we take for most things in emergency medicine and, and it fits really neatly here in, in thinking about risks for, you know, patient like this. Um, I had a question, um, Emma and Sarah, with, with patients who've had uh, radiotherapy to their chest, does that ever cause strictures around the trachea and can that cause or make intubations harder? Absolutely. And that's an unknown quantity with this lady at the moment. And actually, that was the number one reason why I wanted to call anaesthetics. The number two was, Sarah, that... Um, she was so hypoxic and I could not correct her hypoxia. And so I did call anaesthetics down for this tube. She, as I said, she was really, really unwell. You were completely right. The word that I love, Sarah, that you used was optimization. And that's about, I think the idea of a crash intubation is actually a really horrible one. Optimization is about stopping and thinking, yes, this patient's critically unwell. Yes, the intubation's urgent, but what can we do in that, you know, five minute window before we tube them to increase our chances of success? 
And if you're only considering difficult airway as an anatomical phenomena rather than um, considering their breathing, their circulation, those physio- physiological factors, acidosis, then you're going to miss the opportunities to reduce what are often the more predictable risks in ED because we know that all the predict- predictors of difficult airway, the anatomical predictors are highly unreliable. But the predictors of difficult intubation, the patient who may crash or even die during an intubation, are not unpredictable. They're, they're very reliable. And we know, we know what they are. They're hypotension, they're hypoxia, they're acidosis. So optimizing the patient, we did have an art line in at that stage. We had, I did start vasopressors. We started some noradrenaline. We did give a fluid bolus. And I did call for help because I thought, if I can't get this tube in quickly, that could be a real problem. So anesthetics kindly attend. Turns out it was an anaesthetist I knew from when I was a medical secretary working in a practice a million years ago and it was one of the... Anyway, so he turns out we have a, oh, hello, what are you doing here moment? And draw up our ketamine and rock. And we only managed to get to an all-time high of a saturation of 93% prior to ETT. So this is not a well-preoxygenated patient. In ideal conditions, you'd like to see your patient sats at 100% for at least three minutes before intubating. We use the glide scope and the light fails at the point of intubation, so that was disappointing. With direct laryngoscopy, we can only see the arytenoids, which is not a great airway view in a complicated patient. And at this point, we uh, unfortunately get an esophageal intubation. And then despite bag valve mass ventilation and Goodell placement, NPA. We can't get back to that original stats. Now we're at 88%. And now I'm really, really glad that I've got my anesthetist standing next to me. So at this point, I hand over. And on the third attempt with a bougie, with a really quite complex, difficult anterior airway, um, we managed to get the ETT in with CO2 confirmation. And it's quite deep. It's at 28 centimetres, which is a little deeper than you'd probably want. Endotracheal tube depth usually varies between about 19 to 25 centimetres in adults. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I find that that happens when we're getting all a bit tense and we're so excited to see the tube past those cores that we just keep going. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you, Emma, whether you prepped the neck and considered a surgical, you know, obviously there are steps in between a failed tube in that you could have put a temporary LMA in and intubated through that and um, but whether given her known um, malignancy and radiotherapy in the area, whether you sort of had that out or whether that was just nearby. So I had a bougie out, I had a scalpel out, and I had examined the patient's front of the neck. So I was prepared to do a scalpel bougie technique if required um, or at least attempt <laughs> because most of us have done it on cadavers and most of us have not done it in real life. So I had made an assessment and it was part of our airway plan. So at this point, high fives all around and a bit of self-congratulation and we get an urgent chest x-ray and it shows not unsurprisingly a right main bronchus intubation. So we back the tube off about three centimetres and it's now sitting above the carina on the x-ray and the sats settle about 97% and like any good consultant, I wander back to the main desk to spot fires, look after all the other patients I've been ignoring. But before the anaesthetist and I leave, we both notice that there's an airway leak. Every time the patient's ventilated, there's a little extra noise that we would normally expect. 
and we take the cuff pressure and that's holding at 30 millimetres of mercury, which is a normal cuff pressure on the ETT, the endotracheal tube. We suction the patient and there's no change. And haematology have come down, isn't that nice when they're present with these critically unwell patients to actually be part of their own patient's management. It was lovely to have them there. And we said, could this patient have a tracheoesophageal fistula? And they said no. They said the patients had scopes just recently and they don't have a tracheoesophageal fistula, but certainly that was something that we considered at that point. So a couple of hours later, and I know that this patient's waiting to go to ICU. They've already seen them. You know, everything's in a holding pattern as far as I'm aware. Until just after handover, you know, that dangerous time you've handed over your patients, but you're still chatting and hanging around, which means that when someone presses the buzzer on a patient, you know... You've got to head back in there. It's the right thing to do. So I should have gone home straight after handover, but I didn't. I chatted. I hadn't left the floor. And then the resus nurse calls you in for a review and the patient is deteriorating again, this time with progressively falling saturations. Now they're 86% on an FiO2 of one. So Sarah, how concerning is worsening hypoxia in an intubated patient? I think that's a very leading question, Emma. It's extremely <laughs> concerning. Um, and you, you, so you've got a number of things you need to do. You need to try to work out why. Well, before you, before you give us all those answers, um, so you've told me that you're really concerned. <laughs> and look, I guess your reason for concern might maybe approximate mine. Mine is because I feel like I've controlled a lot of factors here and yet my patient's deteriorating. And I've got a tube in their airway. I know it was there and yet they're getting worse. I'm giving them 100% oxygen and yet they're getting worse. It really sort of pretends bad things potentially. Yeah, and I guess that if this is further desaturation because of her underlying illness, which I guess is why I said I'm extremely concerned, is the only there's, – there's, there's very limited next options. So there's – a few sort of inhaled nitric oxide and things that they can do in intensive care. You can prone the patient, but really the only other real escalation is ECMO, so VV ECMO. And so basically providing oxygen through, you know, an um, external machine. And I don't know whether this patient at her age with her comorbidities is appropriate for ECMO, but... I also know that there's a number of other causes of, you know, worsening hypoxia in our intubated patients that isn't purely the underlying disease progression. So, Sam, how about you perhaps tell us what some of those causes might be? So, of hypoxia in the intubated patient, what are some of the things that you might think about? Sarah's mentioned a patient factor, so maybe it's just the disease process and that would be pretty scary in this lady. What are some of the other things that come to mind? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, as med students or junior, young doctors, we, we, we learn the DOPES acronym. Um, but I think, uh, so that's sort of, you know, thinking around um, the actual um, displacement of the tube, whether the tube's obstructed, uh, thinking about patient factors, uh, and then looking at your equipment. Um, and I think it's stack breathing or, or something else to do with patients. But, um, but I mean, I think the, my, my approach is also very similar to what Sarah mentioned, which is sort of working from wall to patient when trying to thinking about these causes. So is it a machine problem? Um, is it a tube problem? Or is it a patient problem? Those are the three components. We would not have an intubated patient that's, that's turning hypoxic. 
think that's a really nice division. And I would just add to that because sometimes people don't think about that as a cause, but oxygen source. So you can think of the the ventilator and equipment, and then the tube is the <laughs> the um, negotiator between that and the patient, and then the patient themselves. Absolutely. Um, at this point, you've got a really unwell patient. You're thinking about all of these causes. Are you making? Are you getting any help at this stage? I could. I'll tell you what I did in a second. But you know, what would you do, Sam? Is this is this someone that you would just manage by yourself? No, definitely not. So you know, in the ED environment, in most ED environments, as a junior doctor, certainly at Boxall, there's always in the first instance senior emergency clinicians around. So you know, I would almost certainly have the uh, emergency you know, the consultant in charge there. Uh, and was overnight the you know um, the uh, senior registrar in charge there plus minus call in the um, the, the consultant uh, on call, um, but also then to think about you know other as you, as we sort of spoken about earlier the other specialties we have access to you have you know a lot of experience in this area so specifically both anaesthetists or intensivists uh, who could help troubleshoot a intubated patient that's deteriorating. So, Sarah, yes? And I was also just going to say, I think something that happens very quickly on the wards that we forget in emergency and particularly overnight is if you call a code blue, all those people are going to come straight away. And this is exactly the scenario where you want them all there and you don't want to be making a bunch of phone calls. So that is exactly what I did. I first pressed the local buzzer and I said, you know, can everyone who's in the ED, who's able to come and help, come and give us a hand? And so that mobilizes the other ED consultants, registrars, you know, you've got someone else helping with access if more access is needed, whatever's needed, and and also nursing staff as well because there's so much to do when you've got a patient who's deteriorating before you. And one of the nurses said, shall I call a code blue? And I said, absolutely, because I have tried to reach the anaesthetists on – our anaesthetists are fabulous at Eastern Health. They're very approachable. They come down at the drop of a hat and they're very quick to get down to the ED. But every now and then you call their mobile number and they have a little debate about who's on <laughs> or they may not answer it immediately. And I just wanted them to come down straight away. And so that was the fastest way to get that message across. And they turned up very promptly, which was great. Sarah, let's talk about this patient. So we've talked about some of the causes. What are you going to do next in terms of the assessment and the actions to start to address this problem? Um, Really, yes, you're going to look at the oxygen source at the wall. You're going to look at is the ventilator working? Is it yelling at you and telling you things is there you know is there hissing coming from somewhere in the tube and then um does that you know having a look actually at the ETT and whether it looks kinked um and suctioning and things but actually realistically the first thing you're going to do in this scenario is to disconnect the patient from the ventilator and suction the tube and then bag them bag them you mean connect them to a bag and valve obviously not the mask just the bag and valve to the tube you want to make sure that that's connected to 15 liters of oxygen and then you want to hand ventilate the patient because that gives you a really um obviously that requires a little bit of experience but you can get a sense of how difficult the patient is 
to ventilate based on how hard it is to squeeze that bag. Um, And then that's whilst that's all occurring, you need to be then doing further assessment of the patient. So you want to be looking at their chest movement. Is there, you know, is one side of their chest not moving because you've got a right main bronchus intubation and you're only ventilating one side? Um, You want to look at listen. Are they wheezy? Um, You want to be thinking about getting an X-ray or if you're ultrasound trained, doing a bedside ultrasound looking for a pneumothorax. Um, and yeah, and then just trying to work out the potential causes. You also want to be thinking, you've given this patient a lot of drugs. Could this be the anaphylaxis? Right. Um, yeah. So you want to be looking at all of their observations, not just their oxygen sats, particularly their blood pressure. So I do exactly the same thing and it is really the standard of care in these patients is to walk into the room and before you've even really thought too much about it, can someone give me the bag valve, I want to say bag valve mask, but you're right, there's no mask attached, the Ledel bag, let me attach that to the patient and get rid of that ventilator and that circuit out of the picture. So you've solved one problem already and some patients will immediately just start to improve and then it's quite clear that this was a ventilator or an equipment problem. Pro tip here, make sure that Lairdow bag is definitely attached to wall oxygen, otherwise you will not be correcting that patient's hypoxia. You won't be the first doctor to forget that. Then as you said, you want to assess the patient and you look at the patient's chest movement. And I think this is something that maybe in the past I haven't appreciated is such a critical step, but really if that patient's chest is moving up and down well, then the ventilator's doing its job. Or in this instance, the Lairdale bag is doing its job. And you need to start to think, is this a patient problem driving this patient's hypoxia? If now you've connected the patient to the Lairdale bag and their chest is moving poorly, that suggests that there is a problem somewhere between the tube and the patient. It's very unlikely it's actually due to the Lairdale bag. When you assess this patient, you notice that their chest movement is actually equal but definitely decreased and you're really easily ventilating this patient every time you press the bag the bag easily closes you know you can feel that you know eases no it's not that there's doesn't feel like there's any obstruction to flow but the patient's chest is really not moving that much and incidentally at this point someone lets you know that the patient's now hypotensive <laughs> and their systolic pressure's gone down to 70 So you just push that away a little bit. Can you just turn up the noradrenaline, (laughs) turn it up to 20 mics a minute? I cannot think about that right now. So, and you hope, and give the patient a bolus, give them, you know, 500 mils of Hartman's. We'll worry about the hypotension in a minute because I've got a critically hypoxic patient. You look again at the uh, end tidal CO2, it's 30, which is sort of in the range of what you might hope for. So obviously some gas is escaping from this patient and... You pass a suction catheter and that passes really well through the endotracheal tube. And now you start to worry, look, maybe this is endobronchial intubation because you knew before it was. So maybe the tube was not secured well or it slipped in the process of x-raying the patient. So you withdraw the tube back a centimetre just to see maybe, you know, it can't have gone in that far. (laughs) So let's just pop it back a centimetre and see, but it it really makes no difference. And as you said, Sarah, you've called for a chest x-ray 
get someone to do that bedside ultrasound and, you know, there's lungs on, you know, you can see lung movement on both sides. So the patient hasn't got a tension pneumothorax and the cuff is maintaining pressure. So you've got a patient who's got a persistent audible airway leak and poor chest movement. And then the nurse says to you, do you know, their tidal volumes, before you rushed in and took them straight off the ventilator, their tidal volumes had been gradually decreasing. Putting this all together, you realise that the air must have been going somewhere other than directly through the tube and into the lungs. Something, this air is escaping somewhere. So what would our options be if we think that that leak could be coming from our tube, Sarah? So sometimes tubes can get damaged on the way into patients or they may be, you know, we may not have checked them carefully enough before we put them in a patient. That would be very unusual. But what are our options going to be if we think that leak is coming from the tube? There really is only one option in this scenario, which is to change the tube. Um, You can't fix you know, occasionally the cuff does get um, torn on the way in and there's really nothing that you can do to fix that. So you have to then go and organise a tube. You have to organise to change the tube. And that in itself is a process. It requires if the patient is, so I don't know, I'm assuming that we've got this patient muscle relaxed given that they're hypoxic um, but if they're not, then you want to be re-sedating um, them, re-relaxing them. Um, and then you need to pass a bougie through the tube and you need assistance. Now, Sarah mentions a bougie here. A bougie is a really important airway device that you need to get to know if you're going to be working with patients' airways. Essentially, it's a long, thin plastic tube. Uh, It's about a metre long. And it's designed to be a placeholder, if you like, into the patient's airway so that you don't lose that tract when you're moving a tube in and out. Yeah, and just for everyone who doesn't know what they are, they're that they're usually blue and they sit on the side of the airway trolleys. So if you ever go and look and you think, what's that long blue thing? It's a bougie. Um, So what we do is we disconnect the patient from um, the bag or the ventilator, depending on exactly how we're ventilating them at the time. You pass the bougie down the tube and down further so that you can then pull the tube um, back and out. So you deflate the balloon, pull the tube out. And sometimes that is actually a little bit more challenging than it sounds. It requires some twisting. You want to make sure that the bougie doesn't come out at the same time, particularly in this patient where you've had a difficult intubation and a difficult airway grade. And then once you've managed to get the first tube out, you simply place another tube over the top of the bougie, intubate the patient, Um, and then remove the bougie so that you're now left with a brand new tube and then inflate the cuff and attempt to ventilate again. I like to think of the analogy for people who are going, what on earth are they doing sticking that thin plastic rod down the patient and there's tubes flying everywhere? I think that a lot of our junior staff are familiar with the Seldinger technique and if you tell them that the bougie is a little bit like the guide wire, it's just holding that tract that can be hard to find again so that you can you know, easily get the next ETT to traverse into the right place. 
why is it so important to do that when you're exchanging a an ETT? So you've said that the patient was a difficult intubation to begin with. Sure, but we did it once. Surely it's going to be just the same the second time around. If I can grab the same anaesthetist, they'll get it back in. Uh, that's definitely not the case, Emma. Um, so we know that the more attempts at intubation, the more difficult it is, and that's because of airway swelling and tra- and trauma from previous attempts. So there may now be blood in the airway. There is likely to be more swelling from the first attempt and any further attempts are likely to be more difficult than the first one. So your first pass intubation is your highest chance of success. I think that's a really nice reminder that the the instrumented airway is not the same as it was 20 minutes ago before you touched it. We then decide that we're going to have to do this process, we exchange the tube. But before we exchange the tube, we pop the video laryngoscope in and see if there's any clues as to what's going wrong. And I think that's a nice thing to know is that you may not have um, sophisticated tools to look down the tube at this point, which we'll talk about later. But the video laryngoscope can give you a nice picture to make sure that uh, the tube is where it should be, to have a look at the nasogastric tube, to see if there's any evidence of any leak. But when we pop that in, there's nothing unusual to see. The ETT seems to be in the right place. There's no obvious leak here. And the nasogastric tube is appropriately sited and, and draining um, gastric contents. So we replaced the seven and a half tube, this time with an 8.5 tube, with the, which is the anesthetist's choice, via railroading over a bougie, as you've described. And we confirm that the position is correct, but the leak is ongoing. We can still hear it. The hypoxia is persisting and now we're sort of sitting around 85%. We've made no gains. And there's at least 100 mil disparity between the inspiratory and expiratory volumes on the ventilator. We temporarily put the patient back on the ventilator to see if we could measure these volumes when things didn't improve immediately after re-intubation. And then we notice something that's really unusual that no one in the room has ever seen before. And that's that the nasogastric tube bag is filling up with gas. Now, it's about a two-litre bag, and within a couple more ventilations, it fills. So we, we, we uh, release the gas there, we open the valve, and then we close it again. And as I said, you know, five or so ventilations later, and this bag is full again. It's really bizarre. Now, Sam, before we talk about what could possibly be going on, how often in the ED do we see things we've never seen before or things that don't quite add up? And, you know, is this something that happens infrequently? Oh, I think the answer to that is a graph that gradually goes down as you, you know, spend more time in the ED. But certainly as a junior and a doctor and, you know, uh, with less experience, you're going to regularly see things that you've seen for the first time or that you haven't seen before or pattern or a combination of things that, that's new. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's part of emergency medicine is this idea of uncertainty and and seeing new variations and new sort of configurations of things. I would um, challenge your idea, and maybe Sarah would too, that as you become more senior, look, it does happen slightly less frequently, but most shifts I see something that I've not seen before, and that is one of the reasons why I love emergency medicine. What about you, Sarah? I think that every patient, even with the same illness, has a different story and a different way that they're presented and a different um, experience. And so I think that even 
if you took three patients who had typical appendicitis, you're you're going to get a slightly different experience seeing and treating each of them anyway and then extrapolate that out to the fact that patients don't present typically for the majority of things. They don't read the textbooks. They don't read the textbooks. They don't have typical presentations and they have unusual diseases. I just want to come back, Sam, to one last thing. What do you do when something seems really weird? What do you do when you've got one of those, I have not seen this before situations? How do we handle that? I think we I do what everyone does. You know, we just turn to Google. Google can be very informative. No, I think, look, <laughs> um, look I, I think it's the same approach to, you know, not having the answers or not uh, – not seeing how things are fitting together, you know. It's uh, you know, as a junior doctor, you 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 get help. You ask for help. You ask for you try uh, access expertise of, of people in the department or in the hospital who might have you know seen this before or who are likely to have potentially seen something like this before. So in this case, if something you know funny is happening with air coming out of the uh, NG tube, you know, the intensivist would be a you know, uh, perhaps a, a group of uh, colleagues who might have seen something like this before who I might think to, you know, call early. And it might be the anaesthetist as well. And sometimes something odd is happening like that and I think it can be quite a distraction from the most important things. So it might be a clue to your management and to the underlying cause, but you must still be looking after the patient's airway. You must still be oxygenating your patient. You must still be addressing their hypotension. So I think you still need to make sure that you've got your priorities in the right order, but then absolutely talking it through, calling calling a friend and sometimes thinking out loud. And for us, by this stage, we had about three ED consultants, <laughs> two anaesthetists and the ICU team. And I think we had the uh, the haematology team as well. And there was various representatives of everyone at the end of the bed. And we're all looking at each other going, what could possibly be going on? People are talking out loud. And as Sarah has said, the likely reason comes up that this patient has got a tracheoesophageal fistula. That's the only, the only thing that sort of makes sense. It's really, it was really fascinating to everyone in the room. And I guess you know would that also that that also fits in would it with recurrent aspirations? Absolutely, absolutely. And so that's I think why I wanted to highlight that right at the start is you've got to ask why this is occurring. They had actually done a swallow study on this patient, and they hadn't had a fabulous swallow study. <laughs> but in the last six weeks before they presented, they'd come in twice with aspiration pneumonia, so they'd barely recovered, and they'd come back in again. And I think meant that you had to look a little bit deeper. And they had had an endoscopy, but that's not enough to ascertain whether this is what's going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So you know that somewhere in their tracheobronchial tree, there's an abnormal connection with their esophagus. Patient sats are still sitting around 85%, changing the tube made no difference. And Really, we need to think, what are our options to evaluate this urgently? Because we, we sort of need to know where this is. Where could it possibly be? And that will influence what we can do about it in terms of managing the patient's airway safely. So what are our options to evaluate this at the bedside in the ED? What what equipment or what could we use them? 
Yeah, so I guess um, bronchoscopy would be an option, although this is not something that we uh, necessarily have in the ED, but you would think we could get it down if we needed it in this instance. And I've never done a bronchoscopy before, Sam. I don't know how to do them. I have no idea how to handle the equipment. But it was amazing. One of the uh, ICU consultants at the end of the bed said, would you like us to get the bronchoscope? I said, yes. What a brilliant idea. Please run and get the bronchoscope. And so they sent one of their minions upstairs (laughs) to grab the bronchoscope, which was just fantastic. And it is a wonderful bedside modality that you can access urgently. I mean, trying to get an echo in the middle of the night, near impossible. But you might be able to get a bronchoscopy from an interested anaesthetist or an ICU consultant. What's really wonderful about the bronchoscope is you can actually attach a special fitting so that on one side of the bronchoscope you can you can ventilate through it essentially is what I'm trying to get at. So you don't have to stop oxygenating and ventilating the patient while you're doing it. So we passed the flexible bronchoscope and just past the end of the ET tube, there's a clear cyclical bubble in the tracheal lining. So we can see every time we ventilate, a little bubble will form and then it will disappear again in just one spot on that tracheal lining. What are we going to do about this, Sarah? Yeah, so I think this would be very hard to think through in the stressful situation, Um, but this is where, and this is why you sometimes need to step away from the bed and have your anaesthetist and your intensivist there because this is not something that ED physicians would think about immediately. But the answer is to put in um, a double lumen tube. So what they do for thoracic cases in theatre is that they can put in a tube that has two lumens, one to go into the right, one to go into the left, so that in those cases they can um, oxygenate one side or the other. In this case, that would just mean that the tube is deeper and further um, and more distal to the fistula and we could still vent- we could still ventilate through both lumens. That was definitely what we discussed doing. So do we just try and get a tube where we can um, push it past the defect in the trachea and then either um, just ventilate one lung potentially because that's what a double lumen tube tends to. You can ventilate both lungs, but if we did that, we would be still potentially ventilating into that trachea. So um, we thought about doing that. And then the anaesthetist said, look, the We know that that defect is just at the tip of the tube. Why don't we just push the tube a little further and see if that improves things? And so we push the tube in just one more centimetre. You can see that the tube's been bouncing back and forward in this whole scenario. One more centimetre, reinflated the cuff, and the patient actually gradually did improve. So they never completely resolved their leak, but it went from sort of approximately 100 mils every breath to about 50 mils every breath and the SATs climbed up finally to 97 to 98%. And then the anaesthetist played with the ventilation settings to minimise the positive pressure so that we weren't forcing air through whatever part of the defect might still be exposed to our positive pressure. And we also saw that the hypotension gradually improved and we could wean down that noradrenaline. Any, any thoughts on why this patient could have been hypotensive? Did they just have so much gastric insufflation? Like I know that some of it was coming out in the bag, but if you've got so much gastric insufflation, it then puts pressure on your inter, 
like on your mediastinum and your intrathoracic area. That would be one thought, but there's probably others as well. Yeah, I think it was largely because of gastric distension. And we saw when we took the chest x-ray for tube position that there's this enormous stomach filling the bottom of the chest x-ray. And essentially, if you blow up your stomach, then that does definitely affect your hemodynamics. And it's not just about, you know, we know in neonates and in children that that can be because of compression of the lungs and compression of the IVC and other things. But I think there's also sort of a reflex hypotension that occurs when your stomach gets so distended. Although we opened the valve on the nasogastric bag, before we'd opened that valve, the presence of the tube, the presence of the nasogastric sorry, the ETT and the presence of the nasogastric tube and the closed valve on the bottom of the nasogastric tube bag, I think actually effectively did seal off most of the stomach. So, you know, normally you would be able to still expel some gas through the airway, but I think all those extra devices through there really had made that gas flow um, much harder to get out. Plus we were adding 100 mils with every ventilation, which is quite a lot. So I think that was the main thing that caused hypertension. But, you know, the patient was also septic um, and uh, probably dehydrated as well. But that acute change in blood pressure, I think, was just gastric dilatation. So I'm going to mention just a little bit about tracheoesophageal fistula. As we've discussed, it's a pathological connection between the esophagus and the trachea, and it can also be between the bronchi. Most of them in adults are actually due to esophageal or lung cancer, and it's quite rare for lymphoma and radiation-related causes. We need to suspect it in patients who have a known risk factor, such as having had one of these cancers or having had radiation, who are coughing following solid and liquid intake, or who have recurrent purulent bronchitis or pneumonia, the diagnosis can be really challenging. So our patient had multiple case discussions after leaving us in the ED and an endless debate over whether there was or wasn't actually a fistula, even though we'd literally seen it at the tip of the tube. We'd seen this thick little bubbling with every ventilation. We'd seen that bag blowing up. And this was largely based on the failure of a non-contrast CT and blue dye studies where they actually put a bronchoscope down and see which way the dye goes. If they put some in the esophagus, does it end up in the trachea, et cetera? So they did these studies and that didn't prove the presence of the fistula and they, there was a lot of toing and froing until finally upper GI said, no, absolutely, it can still occur. The clinical findings really matter and you need to do a CT with esophageal contrast or you need to have a scope that visualises the bubbles occurring when there's positive pressure in either the esophagus through insufflation or in the trachea through ventilation, which we'd already seen on day one of this patient's presentations. There was an enormous amount of discussion about this. The management is really complex and multidisciplinary and includes, as I said, upper GI surgery, thoracics, and in this instance, hematology. And the initial measures that you undertake are just eliminating the patient's oral intake, keeping the head of bed at 45 degrees, uh, thinking about anti-reflux therapy for what that's worth, oral suctioning and treating any pulmonary infection. And you need to treat the underlying defect. And that's typically stents if the patient's got a malignancy, or if you think that they are a palliative patient, you'd be stenting. If it's a benign cause and it's not malignant, then you would consider surgical repair or local measures such as clipping or fibrin glue. But I think most important to note is that spontaneous closure is really rare and untreated 
tracheoesophageal fistula typically leads to progressive deterioration. And most of the measures are actually palliative and you're trying to relieve symptoms or delay death. So the postscript to our lady, unfortunately, though, she made it to ICU and intensive discussions were had regarding her management. She actually didn't survive her sepsis, which is in keeping with the known morbidity of this disease. So thanks so much for discussing that case with me, guys. I'm going to ask you in a second what your key takeaways are. I think for me, the maxim that the marker of having found the correct diagnosis is that it all suddenly makes sense when you find it. That is my key takeaway. Everything fit in. When we understood that this patient had a tracheoesophageal fistula, it explained the aspiration, it explained the deterioration. So when we put this fistula under positive pressure ventilation, it, it worsened. You know, the patient suddenly started filling up their stomach. Uh, they were no longer putting enough gas flow into their lungs, and then the hypotension as a result of this distended stomach, everything just suddenly made sense, and that made the pathway forward clear. So I think that was one of my main takeaways. And then probably my next takeaway is just that the hypoxia in an intubated patient is a potentially fatal emergency, and you really need to have some sort of approach to that, some sort of structure around that and um, getting the ventilator out of the picture by moving onto the Lairdale bag as a first step is, is really just a great thing to remember. So they're my two takeaways. Sam, what about you? Yeah, thanks, Sam. I mean, this is a fantastic case. There's so many uh, key learnings here and things to discuss. I would agree with those two takeaways. You know, there would also be my top two um, I think in addition, for me, um, there's a number of uh, moments in this case where uh, calling for help was the right thing to do. It was in the patient's best interest to get um, the right expertise, you know, around that patient. So whether it was anticipated this difficult airway and, you know, um, you know, calling for anaesthetists or intensivists before you start intubating as part of the planning of the procedure, uh, not sort of once you run into trouble. Um, and then also, you know, calling for, for help and uh, when we started troubleshooting why this patient was hypoxic um, or once she was intubated, uh, apparently correctly. Um, and for me, the t a key part of that is is calling for help early. It's, and it's almost never too early to call for help when you're worried about a patient and things aren't making sense. Uh, you know, and there's always, you know, there's always help around uh, and so accessing it early, I think, is, a, is something that um, I'll take away from that, yeah. Great, Sam. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, so I agree. I think this is a great case. It's – I really respect you for having just continually asked why, like why is this happening, and just being curious. Like I think that's the thing that I'd say to um, the junior doctors listening is don't lose that curiosity. Um try to understand what's going on with your patients. Um, I guess my other thing would be to just um, be aware whether ultimately all of this treatment was in this patient's best interest or not. I know that everyone at the time, you know, stars aligned, every the patient, their family, the intensive care, the haematology, you know, all agreed that um, intubation was the best option for this patient. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, having not been there. Um, but a lot of these patients, after their ICU experiences, 
often say they really wish that they hadn't have been to ICU and hadn't have been through that and their functional status is so much poorer after that. They're so much weaker. They often have to have, you know, additional levels of care or go into care. Um, And I just think um, having learning how to have important advanced care discussions early with patients um, is a really amazing skill to have. That's so important, Sarah. And I actually felt quite sad when I followed up this patient. And, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's very easy as clinicians to just want to do whatever we can. But actually doing something, being active, sometimes we're satisfying our own need to serve the patient or to help. But, you know, taking a cool-headed step back is really important. And as I said, my, my initial inclination was that this probably wasn't the right thing for the patient. But I think they very much felt that they weren't ready to let go and the medical advice was push on. What I would say is it's really, really helpful to talk to our patients who we know have terminal diseases when they're at their best, you know. And I'll often have a chat with patients in the ED and say to them, you know, you're going to get offered a whole lot of things in the future and it's up to you what you decide to do and how you want to spend your time and how much time you want to be in hospital and what you want to subscribe to and not. And that decision can be such a dynamic decision. It's not an all or nothing decision. But I think we don't we don't talk about these sort of things with our terminally unwell patients uh, frequently enough and open those discussions early so that, you know, someone who is critically unwell is making very difficult decisions that they haven't had much chance to process earlier. Yeah, the amount of times I've had a patient who's known to palliative care and I've asked them, what's important to you? Where do you want to die? Are you planning on being in a hospice or at home? And they just haven't even thought about it and I'm amazed. So I think um, just learning how to be comfortable with those questions and those conversations And sometimes patients, someone's discussed it with that patient and they have just been completely closed to it. It's like they've not even heard it. And other times we've just held on to those discussions and not had them because of our own reluctance to to open that up. And I think you're right, Sarah, just being very open about the fact that we're all going to die. And for all of us, it's worth considering what that looks like. Listen, thank you so much, both of you, for coming. And I'd Really appreciate all your insights and your perspective. It's been fun chatting with you. And I'd love to have you both back in the future to discuss our next great case. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for having us. We'd love to be involved again. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for Thrive. Don't forget you can access show notes for this podcast through Workplace. Log in with your Eastern Health email address and password and search for the Thrive Group. This is your education. Please get in touch and let us know how we're doing meeting your needs, ask us a question or suggest a topic you'd love to hear us cover. You may also be interested in producing a podcast with us in your area of specialty interest. It's great CV building and an excellent start in medical education. You can contact us at thrive at easternhealth.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.